Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Dr. Scott Zoller. I'm an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine in Riverside, California. I've also been the author of a number of textbooks on agitation and led the International Guidelines Project on best practices for the evaluation and treatment of agitation over the past several years. And what I'd like to talk with you today is about how we might be able to diverge from that archaic norm of what we call restrain and sedate, which is still far too common when an agitated person enters an emergency department. The initial thought is, let's get that person into restraints and let's give them heavy sedation. And that's the way we treat people. There's a lot of things that uh, we can do better compared to that. And that's what I'd like to chat with you about today. So first of all, when somebody comes into the emergency department, if they're agitated, if you're thinking it's an agitation from a psychiatric source, that doesn't mean it's necessarily psychiatric. There's a lot of different things that can cause agitation, including a lot of very serious medical conditions. So when somebody comes in, it's really incumbent upon your team and you as the uh, provider to find out what the presenting problem is. How, how come this person's there in the ED in the first place? That's, that's what you do with basically everyone who comes to the emergency door anyway. But the next part is really, really important. And that is that you really ensure that there's no medical or organic problems that are causing what appears to be a psychiatric condition of agitation, far too often overlooked or ignored. And unfortunately, I have far too many sad stories of people thinking a person's condition was, quote unquote, just psych. And so they kind of put them on the back burner and didn't realize that under that hat and big head of hair that somebody had had a really bad head injury and they were they had an intracranial bleed and, and some really bad outcomes. Uh, so it's really incumbent on everybody to make sure that whatever looks like agitation and especially any kind of like a confusion agitation, delirium agitation can very likely be due to a serious medical or organic issue. Uh, and then if we're able to rule those out, then we can focus on those psychiatric issues if that's indeed what's causing the agitation. And there's many ways we can stabilize folks without having to over sedate or restrain. And by doing this, we're actually fulfilling our federal uh, obligations under EMTALA. So what do we do in triage? Again, what's the presenting problem? And a really focused history is important when somebody comes in who's agitated. You don't need to find out how many years they worked or their level of education or whether they're a smoker or anything like that. That, that all can come later. Those are important things for history. But right now, it's got to be really focused And what's going on. What can we uh, figure out and what do we need to do right away so that we will have the benefit of that time later to get that more comprehensive history? Vital signs are an, an extremely important part. And so many of the non-psychiatric uh, conditions that uh, lead to agitation can be identified by uh, a rapid heartbeat, a high blood pressure, um, you know, seriously high respirations, temps that are way out of control. And a visual evaluation is really important. Is somebody diaphoretic? Are their pupils extremely dilated? Those kind of things are going to give you suggestions of other causes of, of medical comorbidity. Uh, and the other thing that you want to be able to do at that triage level, and it's something that you're now required to do by surveyors, 
is determine the level of risk and observation that you need for your patient while they're in your emergency setting. So said there were some scary things that can mimic psychiatric agitation. Here's just a few of them. I mentioned head trauma, encephalitis, uh, or other infections of the brain, the brain uh, layers, uh, very, very scary. And, and uh, you know, those act very, very quickly, as you know, and, and can lead to really bad outcomes in, in a matter of hours. Uh, encephalopathy can look just like psychiatric conditions, especially with people with like end stage liver failure, you know, end stage alcoholic disease, uh, metabolic hypoglycemia can look just like schizophrenia when somebody's got a really low blood sugar. A finger stick can tell you the difference between that and somebody who's having a decompensation from a psychiatric condition. Uh, and some of these others, uh, certainly hyperthyroid can look like mania. And we need to really, really worry about overdoses, toxic level of meds, poisons, and even seizures in a postictal state can look like the confusion of serious medical conditions. So it's really important that we use rating scales, just like we do with so many other medical conditions, so that we can communicate between our staff members so that we're all on the same page when we're talking about a patient. And agitation scales are something that really you should be thinking of including in this. And the good news is there's some really, really simple ones that have 100% inter-rater reliability. I like the what's called the behavioral activity rating scale. It's just a, a real quick seven-point scale. So instead of you having a nurse come to you and say, hey, we've got a patient, he's loud, he's, he's uh, boisterous, he, he's uh, not sitting still, he's doing all kinds of things. He's refusing to listen and he's causing problems. Instead of all that and taking a minute of your time before you can even start thinking about what to do, they could just come and say, hey, we got a bar six. What do you need? And that's where you can actually really start to throughput your, your, your triage that much more quickly and help that person who's suffering and get needs your help so badly much, much more quickly. And along those same lines on throughput times, you know, a lot of times, We've talked to docs who say, yeah, we see these agitated patients coming in, and the easiest thing for us to do is to put them into physical restraints, uh, give them uh, three shots into their bare bottom. That's going to make them unconscious. They, they won't even wake up due to a sternal rub. And the good news about that is not only are they not going to wake up until the next shift, so it's not going to be my problem, but they're not going to be threatening or hurting anybody or causing any disruption. Well, that might have made sense at some point in the past when these patients were kind of more rare and you knew you had an inpatient bed waiting as soon as it became available. But in recent years, there's far more patients than there are inpatient beds. And indeed, we find that the vast majority of them probably don't even need inpatient beds if you change your paradigm and start treatment rather than just thinking of restraining and sedating. So you can actually, if you change their mindset from let's put people into restraints and heavily sedate them to, hey, we have a lot more opportunities for this individual. If instead of knocking them out, we chill them out, let's calm them down. Let's use de-escalation. Let's keep them awake because that's going to help them continue to move through the system. If we call a hospital or refer a patient to, and they say, what's the patient doing now? And you say they're unconscious, they'll say, call us back when they're awake. If you call for a consult, same thing, call us back while they're awake. That's going to lead to big backups in your emergency setting. So it's much better that you have somebody who may be mellow, maybe chilled out, maybe even a little sleepy, but still awake and easily able to wake and somebody who will answer questions 
Um, and those medications that you're giving in your emergency setting, those are not chemical restraints, by the way. Uh, chemical restraints are too often used as a stand-in for medications uh, for psychiatric conditions that are given intramuscularly, let's say, but those are not chemical restraints. The definition of a chemical restraint is a medication that's used for a condition it's not indicated for solely to restrict the freedom of movement and liberty of an individual or for staff convenience. That sounds really horrible, doesn't it? You're not doing that. You're giving a medication to treat a patient in a well-established protocol that is the treatment of agitation. And remember that you're not chemically restraining somebody, you're actually treating their condition of agitation. And that can be really huge because if you call a chemical restraints, you need to do the same type of documentation and observation as physical restraints. You call it treatment, which is what it is and what it should be. Uh, that's a whole different documentation. But if you can avoid physical restraints altogether, that's going to lead to a length of stay of your psychiatric patients in the typical hospital general medical emergency department for almost four and a half hours longer than if you had not put them into restraints. So if you're concerned about throughput time, if you're concerned about wall time, if you're concerned about door to discharge time, it's a good thing for you to avoid restraints whenever possible. And if you might say, wait, if we don't restrain people, there's going to be more injuries, more assaults. Actually, all the research shows that if you reduce restraints in your emergency department, the number of injuries and assaults go down because two-thirds of staff injuries involving placing a patient into restraints happen during that process of putting them into restraints. That's where the combativeness is. That's where the somebody gets an elbow or a knee or a kick or things like that. If you can find ways to stop using restraints and replace it with a more therapeutic alliance, collaboration and de-escalation, you're going to have wonderful, wonderful outcomes as a result. Indeed, everything revolves around de-escalation with an agitated patient. You can do much better if you use some basic calming de-escalation techniques that will help you do the medical eval, the psych eval, and even offer medication. Medication is part of de-escalation. You can say, hey, you're going through a tough time. I think some medication would work now. What, what's worked for you in the past? Maybe I can get that for you and get a couple pills and a glass of juice. How different is that than in tying somebody down, pulling their pants down, and sticking three needles into their bare bottom? All of these things help prevent the need for seclusion and restraint. And so that's why it's really incumbent upon uh, teams who work with psychiatric emergency patients to really get good at de-escalation. It's a pretty basic technique that anybody can learn. It doesn't take long to learn. A lot of it is a philosophy and an approach. And once you start doing it, it just makes all the difference in the world. If there's one thing I can tell you that you can take away from today about learning de-escalation, it's a very simple one. It's almost like the golden rule. If somebody's agitated, don't be agitated back to them. Be the mellow person. Listen, listen, ask questions. That's going to help people to calm down. And you might say, well, I don't have time to do that. It's easier for me to write an order to put somebody in restraints and give medications. But you know what? The average de-escalation only takes a couple of minutes. And when you think of what all your team is doing, putting that person in restraints, calling up medications, that might be several different people working for 20 or 30 minutes to pull that off. So you've like lost your whole team. So maybe it's a little bit easier for you, but everyone else in the emergency department is working 10 times harder where all it took was a minute or two of a sympathetic ear 
and really working towards getting that patient the help that they needed. If you can avoid that containment procedure, putting people in restraints, like I mentioned, far fewer injuries to both staff members and to patients, and you're going to get some other nice outcomes. Patients aren't going to see you as their adversary. They're going to be more trustful. Maybe they're going to listen to you later if you found ways to avoid tying them down and injecting them and instead worked with them collaboratively and offered medications willingly. And when you're trying to move those patients to those outside facilities, those psychiatric hospitals or other psychiatric programs, you know, if you call them up and say, we've got a person in restraints, will you take them? They say no and hang up the phone. Call us back when they're out of restraints. Uh, but if you've got somebody who you can document was cooperative, did well, took meds willingly and was never in restraints, that person's going to go to the top of your list in terms of interest from the psychiatric hospitals. So really quickly, just to sum up, uh, when we do give medications, those are not chemical restraints, but they're actually targeted appropriate treatments that you're choosing to treat the symptoms of agitation and agitation, agitation is a disease state. And you need to think of it that way. You're not punishing anybody. You're not restraining anybody with medications. You're treating the underlying condition that has caused agitation as one of its disease state symptoms. Best to use non-pharmacologic approaches first, that's de-escalation and calming techniques. And again, use medication to chill people out, not knock them out. Uh, you don't get any benefits from having somebody unconscious and snoring. A lot of benefits by somebody who's a little bit sleepy, but is still able to talk over things with you. If you come in, give them a little uh, you know, touch on the shoulder, they'll wake up and be able to chat with you miles, miles ahead of the game if you do that. And it's also important to actually ask your patients what medications work for them. It's really good to say, hey, um, can we uh, help you out? What meds worked for you in the past? And uh, nine times out of 10, they're going to ask for oral meds. So that's our talk for today. And, and thank you very, very much. I really, really appreciate everybody listening in. And I'm Dr. Scott Zeller uh, from uh, University of California, Riverside. And I'm happy to chat with you, anybody, if you'd like to speak more about agitation. It's a passion of my career. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.